The CSPR rule is really aimed at targeting passive offshore income. There's obviously exemptions for active income under the CSPR rule. So there's exemptions for listed countries, which have similar tax treatment to Australia. So the US, Canada, the UK, all listed countries, right? So it's really targeting accruing passive income, say interest, dividends, rent in countries like, let's call it Hong Kong, for example, controlled by an Australian resident controller. Whereas the CMAC rules really can target even an active business an active company offshore, even in the US, the UK, that's controlled from Australia, that has its central management and control from Australia, and that would effectively onboard that foreign company. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 410 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. In this episode, let's ask Bradley Murphy and Dan Casserell of Murphy Tax in Sydney six questions about foreign trusts and foreign companies. And let's ask them about transfer trust. And just to clarify, it is not transfer as in bank transfer but transfer raw, so an OR at the end. So let's ask Bradley and Darren about transfer trust. Then in question two about how certain rules apply to residents, but not to non-resident beneficiaries. Then in three, the streaming of capital gains derived from TAP and non-TAP. In question four, Darren and Bradley will talk about convict foreign income. Question five will compare the concepts of CFC and CMAC. They are different but they also overlap. And then in the last question, let's look at why Section 99B usually doesn't apply to bear trust. That is the plan for today. So here are Bradley Murphy and Darren Casserell of Murphy Tax in Sydney. Question number one, transfer trust rules. The first question, hopefully the answer is very straightforward and it's just a short yes. Do the transfer trust rules only apply to foreign trusts? Yes. That's all? There's no but? No, that you just need a resident transferrer who, you know, transfers property or services, and it can be directly to a trust or ultimately to a trust via an interposed relationship. The framework is you need to be an Australian resident transferor, and it ultimately has to land in a trust. And it must be a foreign trust. Well, yeah, because obviously... Transferring it to an Australian trust would have subject to CGT and all of those sorts of you know things. That's that's right. And then the second question also about transfer trust or transfer trust is the transfer trust rules don't apply to foreign residents, correct? Because correct. We, we have nothing to do with yeah. foreign residents. Or let me ask yeah. it differently. Let's say we have a foreign resident and we have a transfer trust, and then this transfer trust distributes to this foreign resident. Do we, as in Australia, pick up any income on the way between why the income travels from the transfer trust to the foreign resident? No. No, that's the, the transfer of trust rules will apply when an Australian yeah, settler or yeah, transferer contributes to a foreign trust and then they benefit effectively under that trust once they're an Australian resident. So it wouldn't apply if they were a non-resident of Australia. Okay. And if the income is Australian sourced, then it would get picked up, correct? Correct. But then it would get picked up because it's Australian sourced, not because it's coming from a transfer trust. And it basically yep. gets picked up 
as Australian sourced, no matter whether it is in a foreign trust or not, correct? Correct, exactly. Australian source income, if it's, yeah, it's, for example, Australian rental income, it's taxed at Australian source income, non-resident rates on the income. If it was an unfranked dividend, for example, it's subject to withholding tax rates on that income. So that was already owed to the transfer trust route. Next is... Question number two, resident and non-resident beneficiaries. Resident and non-resident beneficiaries, that one is very quick. Resident beneficiaries are assessed under Section 97. Non-resident beneficiaries, are they also assessed under Section 97? And you probably could just say, why don't you just read Division 6? But I struggle to understand Division 6. Yeah, this is, this is complex. and uh, I'll kick it off and Darren can come over the top. But effectively, 90, Section 98 is the section that assesses both non-resident beneficiaries and the trustee. So effectively how it works is that the under Section 98.3, the trustee is assessed first on the you know, taxable component of the non-resident beneficiary's income, and then the beneficiary is also assessed under 98A, and they get a credit for the tax paid by the trustee. Because effectively under that Section 98.3, the trustee has a withholding obligation to withhold amounts to a non-resident beneficiary. Now, to make it even more confusing, Section 115.220 is a provision that taxes net capital gains from Australian Trust paid to a non-resident beneficiary. And that also assesses the trustee at the first instance, and then that's added to the 98.3 amount of the beneficiary. Does the trustee actually get assessed under 98.3 or does the trustee just have a withholding obligation on behalf of the foreign resident in 98.3? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So the trustee has a withholding obligation under 98.3 and then the beneficiary has the actual obligation under 98A. So resident beneficiaries get assessed under Section 97. Non-resident beneficiaries get assessed under Section 98A. However, the trustee has a withholding obligation under 98-3. Yeah, correct. And then for capital gains, it's assessed under 115-220 for capital gains paid to foreign residents. But that's actually added to the 98-3 net income. So there's two provisions for capital gains. So resident beneficiaries get assessed under Section 97 for ordinary income and then Division 6E for capital gains and franking credits. And non-residents... Like the distributions not subject, previously subject to tax. <laughs> Actually, there's probably a longer list of things they get assessed under. You're right. Good. Yeah, but I probably stopped there because there's a long list. Yeah, or, or just to finish... Like a master's exam, eh? This is uh, quite, <laughs> quite <laughs> technical. <laughs> exactly. And then we have for the non-resident, we have Section 98 and 115 to 20. You just mentioned Section 99B. Section 99B can never affect a non-resident beneficiary. Or I shouldn't say never because everybody's nervous of saying never. But Section 99B probably, probably never affects a non-resident beneficiary, correct? Correct. Correct. Or a temporary resident. Because point. I think Section 99B doesn't apply to temporary residents, correct? That's right. Does correct. Apply to yeah. temporary residents or foreign residents. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Temporary residence is a form of foreign resident, yeah. Question number three, streaming of capital gains from TAP and non-TAP. 
The trustee can stream capital gains if the deed allows, irrespective of whether it's from TEP or non-TEP, correct? I mean, the deed might distinguish between TEP and non-TEP, but if the deed doesn't distinguish, then it's not an issue under our Australian tax law, correct? The streaming of capital gains. It doesn't no, matter whether it's TEP yeah. or non-TEP, correct? No, no, there's no delineation between it. It's just the streaming of capital gains, yeah, through that specific entitlement regime, same as franked dividends. Okay. There's no delineation of the, the two the types of capital gain. Question number four, conduit foreign income. In episode 408, you mentioned conduit foreign income. I know this is a huge topic. Can you just explain what conduit foreign income is and what the issue is with respect to a resident on foreign trust? Conduit foreign income, yeah, effectively, well, what it means um, in essence is where you have you know, foreign source income that effectively flows through an Australian trust or an Australian company and is effectively distributed to a non-resident beneficiary, right? So effectively, the rules say that, you know, in that case, it you know, should not be taxed under the Australian rules where it's really a foreign source income component that passes through the Australian system and passed out to a non-resident beneficiary. In terms of the, the, the question, Heidi, well, I think conduit foreign income like or CFI, um, as it's sort of known in short, is looked up probably more so in the context of an Australian company. When the Australian company receives foreign source income and those dividends are paid out to a non-resident shareholder, where effectively the dividends from the Australian company are not subject to Australian tax. There's no withholding tax on those dividends paid out to a non-resident shareholder. In the sense of a trust, it's complex. I tend to deal with it more in the context of Australian corporates as opposed to Australian trusts, okay? have to be a unit trust at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay, so you can only have convict foreign income if you have a unit trust. Yeah, it's very more common for public companies in the sense of how we sort of see it probably more widely dealt with. You know, when an Australian public company has foreign income and paying out dividends to non-resident shareholders... They need to keep a separate CFI account just to show those dividends are not subject to Australian withholding tax. Your sort of wealth investments in your wrappers, you know, the, the products out there that you participate in as a unit holder of these public funds and they will, yeah, maybe you were Australian at the start and then you, you moved overseas and they identify you as a non-resident unit holder and so a portion of your flows income, foreign income just flows straight through because it doesn't necess- doesn't make any sense to tax it in Australia because it's just literally, as they say, it's a conduit, you know. So you would pay a, an, an unfranked dividend then, correct? Because if you pay a frank dividend, it's also not subject to withholding tax. So you would make it an unfranked dividend and then because it's CFI, it can flow out without a withholding tax, correct? Yeah, correct. Yep. Good. Because it would be unfranked as received anyway as far as... Yeah. So it's a distribution from a foreign company, yeah. for example, that would be unfranked in, and so you would unfrank it out anyway. So that could be relevant, for example, before a smaller company that has all its income from overseas operations and then pays it to a foreign shareholder. I mean, we see it a little bit in the private context, but I think um, like normally in the true you know private company context, they would have a foreign company paying out dividends directly to foreign shareholders. So it's normally not as common in the sort of smaller private company context, just because they normally have their main head office overseas. They pay those dividends out directly 
to foreign shareholders from that foreign company. But certainly we see it a lot, a lot in the public company context, for sure. But you're right. Like it could definitely apply to an Australian private company as well. Question number five, CFC versus CMAC. At the end of episode 400A, you say that the CFC rules overlay the CMAC rules. Can you elaborate on that? So just to summarize, the CFC rules basically apply an accrual concept to income that is accrued in a foreign company. If you control that company, then you basically pay tax, Australian tax on that income as if it was distributed in that year it was earned. So using accrual. So if you have that, if you have a CFC, how is that overlaying over the CMAC rules? Maybe overlay the right word. They're just alternative systems that both look at foreign, say, foreign companies or foreign trusts, okay? So you'll have your controlled foreign company, controlled foreign trust regime that will look at whether or not there's any is there an attributable taxpayer in Australia? Does it have attributable income, for example, because it's it's tainted income? That is a separate, and that, that looks to sheet home onto the actual taxpayer in Australia, that, you know, the income of the entity under an accruals regime. Conversely, I guess, so maybe overlays not, this central management control regime looks at, okay, well, Notwithstanding, we we may have an entity controlled in a foreign or entity set up in a foreign jurisdiction, whether it's a company or a trust. Are the key decisions of that vehicle being made by Australian resident individuals? And therefore, there's a deeming rule to say, well, in that case, if that is true, then that entity will be deemed to be an Australian resident entity for Australian tax purposes. So in the case of a foreign trust that's being controlled from Australia, the legislation will say, well, your central management and control of that entity is really here. So therefore, it's subject to all of the rules of Division 6, which means that you know, notwithstanding what it can do in the jurisdiction that it is in, it has to play by the rules in Division 6. So if it's not distributing income, the trustee you know, gets assessed. It's actually very interesting to put CFC and CMAC together because they actually do have quite a lot in common in that they try to basically pull something that is foreign into the Australian tax net. In the CFC, it puts it into the Australian tax net based on an accrual basis. So we accept that it's a foreign company, but because it's controlled by us, we pull the income into the Australian tax net as soon as it is earned. Whereas the CMAC concept basically asks, is that even a foreign resident? And basically looks at management and control and then actually pulls the entire company into the Australian tax net, whereas CFC only pulls the relevant portion of the income into the Australian tax net at the time. I think that the, yeah? the big difference too is that the CFC rule is really aimed at targeting passive offshore income. There's obviously exemptions for active income under the CFC rule. So the CFC rules at their heart target passive income accrued in unlisted countries, right? That's the other key point is that there's exemptions for listed countries, which have similar tax treatment to Australia. So the US, you know, Canada, the UK, all listed countries, right? So it's really targeting, you know, accruing passive income, say interest, dividends, uh, rent in yeah, countries like 
let's call it Hong Kong, for example, controlled by an Australian resident controller. Whereas, yeah, as you both said, the CMAC rules really can target even an active business, an active company offshore, even in the US, the UK, that's controlled from Australia, that has its central management and control from Australia. And that would effectively onboard that foreign company and that would be subject to the Australian tax rate of between 25 to 30%. So yeah, both, they're similar provisions, but they apply a little differently. Yeah, that's definitely a whole session in itself, that one. (laughs) And then the final question is a comment you made in the second half of episode 407, where you mentioned about trust. Now, before I ask my question about bear trusts and why Section 99B doesn't apply to bear trusts usually, here's a quick word from our sponsor DocuSign. Last year, our accounting firm was hacked. Okay, I'm going to admit it. My password was password. I thought about going back to old school paperwork, but then I heard about DocuSign. It has the highest global security standards with round-the-clock activity tracking, keeping digital agreements confidential. So now we're on DocuSign and no one's cracking my password. And no, it's not one, two, three, four. Sign up for your free trial at DocuSign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Question number six, Bear Trust and Section 99B. In my life so far, I have mainly come up when we are looking at an LRBA in, in an SMSF. But you mentioned Bear Trust. I actually think you mentioned it twice and maybe even hinted at that a bear trust can protect you from Section 99B, but maybe I'm leaning too far out of the window. Can you, A, clarify what a bear trust is to set the ground and then elaborate on how Section 99B might affect a bear trust or might not affect a bear trust? Look, the whole idea of a bear trust is that the trustee itself has zero discretion. It can only act on the instructions of the beneficiary. So I could hold this bottle of water, you know, on your behalf, Heidi, and then I can't do anything with it. Not allowed to, unless you tell me to do something with it, either, you know, keep it or sell it or whatever. It sounds like an abusive relationship. Well, it's it's, it's a bare trust because there's no deed. You know, there's no contractual relationship other than you do as I tell you to do with that. You know, it's a... And there are capital gains tax provisions that look at that relationship in particular. And therefore, you know, it would be highly unlikely, I suspect, I won't say impossible, but yeah, if you did have a bare trust relationship and the asset was beneficially yours, and you know Australian tax looks at beneficial ownership, it doesn't actually look at legal ownership a lot of the time. So it's especially around CDT and and so on, who's, who's got the beneficial entitlement to that asset then there's no real role for the trustee to play. So there's every chance that that would just be looked through and would be looked at as your asset. So if it was sold, for example, let's say it was a property overseas, for example, under a bare trust relationship, I don't think that would be something that would be subject to 99B because you're going to be subject to the tax on the income and the sale anyway because it's a bare trust. So with a bare trust, the ATO basically acts like there is no trust and they basically pretend that the um, ownership is in the uh, beneficiary's hands. So they basically, if it was a bare trust, so this bottle of water you just mentioned, 
they basically act as if this bottle of water is mine and if I sell it, they treat, they tax it as if the bottle of water was in my name. Hence, there is no room for Section 99B because the tax law basically ignores the trust relationship and basically acts like I own the bottle. Yeah, assuming it's a bad trust and that's where obviously it's important to establish is it a bad trust or is it a 99B trust? So looking at the trustee, for example, is there a, a trustee? What is a role of that trustee? And obviously, if there is a trustee that's not the same beneficial owner, then effectively you're back in 99B land. And now Darren's comment makes perfect sense when he said something along the lines of, you know, if it's a bear trust, then we might be out of Section 99B or so. I, I don't quote you verbatim. I'm sure it's slightly different, but yeah. that's what you meant and that's why you said it. Yeah, I mean, look, you could always think up an example. You know, you may have a bear trust relationship, but for whatever reason, the person in charge of the asset overseas has failed to give you the money for the rent or whatever. You know, what would happen in that, you know, circumstance type of thing? So, yeah, water it down. But I think your bear trusts on their own are a difficult concept for everyone. It's just I believe that, yeah, it would be some problems with 199B on, under a bear trust. We managed to weave in foreign companies as well. I mean, yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the CFC rules too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And CFI. And CFI, yeah. Come yeah. with all, all the C's. It's great. Well, all the C's. Bradley Murphy and Dan Castro of Murphy Tax in Sydney. So this was our last episode for this year. Looking back over the year, we have covered a lot of ground. We did a long mini-series about child support, spent a lot of time on transfer pricing, dived deep into the rules around Section 100A, looked at asset protection and structuring, discussed CIMs and drilled deep into trust and then foreign trust, which we haven't finished yet and will come back to next year. Looking ahead, we will talk more about foreign trusts for example, what happens if a resident trust becomes a foreign trust and even more relevant if a foreign trust becomes a resident trust? What happens in that moment? We will cover the now finalized regulations 2015 that changed the amendment period to four years for most taxpayers. You will hear about employee share schemes and we will also do a pipeline walkthrough with a medium-sized accounting practice. So these are the topics that are in the pipeline at the moment. But of course, there's a lot more to come. A huge thank you to DocuSign for their support this year. That was very kind of them and I really appreciate it. Please allow me to thank Jen and Julie Solomon for managing tax talks, for giving it the back office support it needs. I would like to thank Michael Grammatopoulos Murphy for great editing and especially thank five-year editor Borna Mijolovic for being part of tax talks and giving his very best and outstanding patience all the time. I actually met Borna for the first time this year after five years and we had a wonderful evening. I and one of my children met Borna and his wife or his partner Mira in Zagreb in July and we had a really nice evening together. So it was, that was really nice. Now, I would like to ask you a great favor. Could you please forgive me if we change from a weekly podcast to a bi-monthly podcast. So you receive two episodes each month, usually at the start of the month, as opposed to an episode each Monday. I mean, 
you probably won't notice because you have lots of podcasts you listen to and you just go through your playlist and don't even notice if Text Talks is there less often. But just in case you do notice, please accept my apologies. Now, why the change? I want to double turnover in 2024 and then hopefully in 25. I really want to grow. And of course, that doesn't happen by itself. Things need to change for that. And changing things takes time. I want to move into a niche, really focus on at least one specific client group, creating tailored content, blog posts, especially videos. I really want to see how effective videos are in the marketing funded. But I really want to focus on more specific client groups and also streamline processes. That's just an ongoing thing. But it is boring to hear somebody's plans. Plans and ideas are nothing worse until you actually do it. So I keep this short and instead I will tell you this time next year how it worked out. I will tell you whether I managed to double turnover and if yes, what really helped achieving that. So that is why I'm changing from a weekly podcast to a bi-monthly podcast. I'm already working on a January episode. So when you come back from your Christmas and New Year break or your Hanukkah break or your Chinese New Year break, when you come back from your break, you will have text talks waiting for you. I hope you have a really nice time over the next four and a half or six, seven weeks until you tune into text talks again. I hope that you can relax, reflect, make plans, have a nice time with family and friends and come back refreshed with new enthusiasm and ideas. Until then, thank you for listening. And for the last time, thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now. Have a great start to the new year and see you in the next episode in January 2024.